millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 62, Succession Times 2. Thanks for listening in. So last time out, we covered the first 40 years of Anna Ivanovna's life, from her birth in 1693, through her strict and fun-starved childhood, her marriage that had lasted less than a month, her time as the Duchess of Courland, and her unlikely accession to the throne of Russia in 1730. We then looked at the first three years of her reign, which encompassed, well, not much to be honest, apart from setting up shop in St. Petersburg instead of Moscow, and moving in with her lover, Ernst Biron, and his wife and son, and allegedly overseeing all kinds of bizarre behaviour at court, endless puerile gossiping, fools behaving like chickens, dwarf-throwing, and hair-pulling fights all of which were observed or tolerated without the soothing or numbing effects of alcohol. This week we'll be seeing how the word succession was dominating everyone's minds, both at home and abroad. Well, I say everyone, around 85% of Russia's population and a large percentage of Europe's, i.e. the poor, didn't really care a jot. Unless, of course, it meant war, which... Unfortunately for them, in one of its guises, it soon would. Before we start, though, there are a couple of items that I need to quickly run through. The first is a correction. In the last episode, I mentioned how Vitus Bering led an expedition to the settlement of Oktosh and from there to the Kamchatka Peninsula. Well, I should have known better. It's not pronounced Oktosh. It's pronounced Okhotsk, although personally, I think Oktosh is better. Now, I only realised this when I was doing some research into the History of Siberia series that I'm currently running on the Patreon subscription channel, which brings me nicely on to the second item. So I'd like to welcome the following Patreon subscribers to the Boy Arduma. David Bleeden, Andrew, John Villiers and Jane. Now, if you want to join them to get members-only episodes, early access to general release episodes, ad-free content and written transcripts for around the price of a cup of coffee per month, then you can in a couple of ways. You can go via the podcast website, historyofrussia, or one word, dot net. Just click on the membership page or the Patreon logo on the homepage. Or you can go directly to Patreon at patreon.com forward stroke history of Russia. That's patreon.com forward stroke history of Russia. And I'll post those details in the episode notes 
for anyone who's interested in taking the plunge. Okay, that's the intro over. Let's do some history of Russia. Oh, and to begin with, several other places. So at some point in the late summer or autumn of 1732, Augustus II, King of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Elector of Saxony, whose health had been failing for a number of years, became seriously and chronically ill. He'd been in charge of both of his territories since 1697, apart from a five-year period between 1705 and 1709, when, during the Great Northern War, he had been booted out by Charles XII of Sweden and replaced as King of Poland by, and apologies here to Polish listeners, Stanislaus Leszczynski. Augustus was on the surface very much a man of his times. We've mentioned his phenomenal physical strength in a previous episode. But from what I can make out, his main hobbies alternated between bending horseshoes with his bare hands, fathering dozens, some say hundreds, of illegitimate children, and the mistreatment of animals. And there were two stories that are maybe true or maybe apocryphal that sum Augustus up. The first tells of a famous animal-tossing contest in Dresden, during which hundreds of animals, including foxes, hares, badgers and wildcats, were tossed high into the air and then, if they weren't already dead by the time they'd fallen back down to earth, were finished off in various cruel ways. And the second concerns an incident where Augustus was attempting to seduce one of the palace servant girls, only to be told, in the nick of time, that she was one of his illegitimate daughters. However, and this is a good however, well, could it get any worse? He was also recognised by his peers for presiding over one of the most extravagant and cultured courts in Europe. He toured France and Italy in the late 1680s and was deeply impressed with the architecture, and in particular, the grandeur of Versailles. And so, when he eventually became Elector of Saxony in 1694, he started a massive building programme that would eventually transform his capital, Dresden, from a tired and sleepy provincial backwater into one of the finest cities in Europe that would, in time, contain one of the finest collections of art in the whole of the Holy Roman Empire. By December 1632, though, he was bedridden. His weight had ballooned to 240 pounds from years of good living, exacerbated by the side effects of rampant diabetes. His time was up, and the whole of Europe knew it. But Augustus's death would mean three things. An election to decide the new king of Poland, a reawakening of hostilities between the two preeminent powers in Europe, the Habsburgs and the Bourbon, and their respective allies, as each side supported a different claimant to the Polish throne, and then a further decline in the fortunes of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. All of which sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it, except it was anything but, as we will soon see. So across the continent it was widely recognised by those in the know that there were really only two candidates who were in with a chance of becoming the next King of Poland. 
The ex-king, Stanislaus, who was supported by the French, well, his daughter was married to Louis XV, and so it would have been strange if they hadn't, and Augustus's son, who, annoyingly, was also called Augustus and was favoured by Habsburg Austria, mainly because they didn't want the French candidate to get the job and to stop France and Saxony from forming an alliance. However, both of the two great European powers would need allies and money to help them sway the Polish electors. And so, whilst Augustus lay dying, the diplomatic channels were thrown open and the horse trading began. First to get their heads together, in December 1732, were Russia, Austria and Prussia. They had a chat and decided that their interests were best served by blocking the election of both Stanislaus, who they didn't want, and young Augustus, who they didn't quite trust, and supporting a third candidate, Manuel, the brother of the Portuguese king, who would, in their view, be easier to manipulate. And they sealed their agreement via a secret treaty, the Treaty of the Three Black Eagles, so-called because each of their official coats of arms featured at least one black eagle. This left France in a bit of a quandary. By rights, they'd have probably been better off supporting the claim of young Augustus and trying to form an alliance with Saxony, particularly as their ally of the last 15 years, Great Britain, had recently informed the French that they were pulling out of their, their agreement and that if war came, they would be keeping out of it. On the 1st of February 1733, Augustus II died, and during the spring and summer, France and Austria started to mobilise and position their troops. At this stage, both felt they had to do something, or, to put it more succinctly, both felt that they had to be seen to be doing something. The diplomatic channels remained open, though, and France struck first. The French ambassador in Warsaw managed to convince a group of powerful Polish families to unite and support Stanislaus's candidacy. And then France put pressure on the primate of Poland to call a convocation of the Siem, which is spelt S-E-J-M, but pronounced Siem or Siem, I think and pass a resolution forbidding the candidacy of foreigners, which effectively barred young Augustus and Manuel of Portugal from the race. By the way, don't worry if all of this is getting a bit too much. I'll try and sum everything up in just a tick. Now, we don't know what Manuel's thoughts were, but young Augustus immediately hot-footed it across to Vienna to urgently discuss the latest situation with the Austrians and the Russians. And his stance was, if you support my claim, then Anna stroke Russia, you can have the full rights to Courland, plus I'll give up Poland's claim to Livonia, and Charles stroke Austria, I'll recognise the right of your daughter Maria Theresa, who incidentally was the mother of Marie Antoinette, to succeed as Empress, something that the Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI was struggling to get overall agreement for. Both Austria and, Pro and Russia agreed. No one asked the Prussians what they thought, and so events had reached their somewhat inevitable conclusion. France would be supporting Stanislaus, and young Augustus would be Austria and Russia's candidate. 
In August 1733, the date for the election of the new Polish king was announced. September the 12th was to be the day, and the Polish and Lithuanian electors started to make their way towards Warsaw. At around the same time, Anna and Munich got their heads together and decided to send around 30,000 Russian troops into eastern Poland, under the command of yet another veteran commander from Peter the Great's time, Field Marshal Peter Lacey, who incidentally was one of the wild geese, soldiers in the army that had left Ireland for France after the Jacobite Wars. And his job was to sit tight, keep the pressure on, just to let everyone know what Russia thought the outcome of the election should be. But what Russia was trying to do with its army, France had succeeded in doing via diplomatic means and soft power, because on September the 12th, Stanislaus was elected as King of Poland. But not all of the electors had been present at the Sejm. A breakaway group of mainly Lithuanian delegates had instead decided to move east into Russian-occupied territory, and on October the 5th, they held their own election, chose young Augustus as king, and a few days later, both Russia and Austria recognised him as king of Poland. On October the 10th, France made its next move and declared war on Austria and Saxony, and so the battle lines were finally drawn. On King Stanislaus's side were France, Spain, the Duchy of Parma, and the Kingdom of Savoy, Sardinia. Spain, because the King of Spain was the French King's uncle, plus the Spanish had their eyes on Habsburg territory in Italy, as did Parma and Savoy, Sardinia. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. On King Augustus's side, and from now on we'll be referring to him as Augustus III, were Austria. Russia, Prussia, and Saxony. We need to remember, though, that the disputed Polish election was just the catalyst. The bigger picture remained the struggle for European supremacy between the Bourbon and the Habsburgs, and both sides were eager to add further potential allies to their respective causes. France opened negotiations with the Ottoman Empire and Sweden, Austria did the same with Great Britain and the Dutch Republic, but for various reasons, none of them could be persuaded to come to the party, which probably worried the Austrians more because a. they had no allies to protect their southern and western territories, b. they didn't fully trust the Prussians, c. other constituent parts of the Holy Roman Empire, most notably Bavaria and Hanover, had yet to declare for them, although the following year the entire empire would declare for Austria, and d. neither Russia or Saxony were really interested in the bigger continental picture and just wanted to concentrate on the situation in Poland. And probably, and much to your relief, we're going to do the same. 
Lacey's Russian army, which had been largely inactive for months, finally received orders to move west, and in late 1733, Warsaw was occupied, and in early 1734, in Krakow, Augustus III was crowned as King of Poland. Stanislaus, who still retained the support of most Polish nobles, decided to regroup and retreated northwards to Danzig, or modern-day Gdansk. Back in St. Petersburg, however, the view of events was somewhat different. Anna and the cabinet blamed Lacey for allowing Stanislaus to escape, and another Russian army, this time commanded by Munich himself, was sent west to link up with Augustus's Saxons to capture the unfortunate Stanislaus, who at this point must have been wondering how he'd managed to get himself involved in all of this mess. In the early summer of 1734, Danzig capitulated and Munich marched into the city in triumph. The trouble was, though, that Stanislaus was nowhere to be seen and it was later discovered that once again he had slipped the net and had escaped, first to Prussia and then finally back to France. And with that, the military situation in Poland was essentially resolved. A group of Polish nobles who supported Stanislaus, or, to put it another way, didn't want Poland to come under increased Russian influence, tried to carry on the fight. But their efforts were largely ineffective, and in 1736, a new Sejm was held, which officially confirmed Augustus III as King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania. However, that wasn't the end of the war which would rumble on between the French and the Austrians in the Rhineland and the Italian peninsula for another year or so. A preliminary peace was finally concluded in October 1735 and this was then ratified via the Treaty of Vienna in November 1738, which officially confirmed Augustus as King of Poland. Apart from that, various bits of European territory changed hands the French and their allies recognised the pragmatic sanction that would allow the Austrian Emperor Charles's daughter Maria Theresa to succeed him, and Stanislaus officially abdicated and ended up with the Duchy of Lorraine. There's a really nice clear map on Wikipedia that was originally put together by Brian Rutherford, which shows Europe at the end of the war, which I'll post up on the website and include in the transcript for Patreon members. Back in St. Petersburg, the mood could now be described as bullish and confident. Russia had achieved her aims, i.e. greater control and influence over the Commonwealth at very little cost, either in materiel or reputation. However, at this point, geopolitically, the Russian Empire was still viewed by the most of the rest of Europe as a peripheral and arriviste junior player, unimportant and far away. However, in 1736, Russia would again be at war, this time with the Ottomans. But we'll get into that in the next episode, because for now, Anna had a bigger issue to deal with and a decision to make. I mentioned at the back end of the last episode that in 1733, Anna was 40, unmarried and childless, and that this was a situation that was unlikely to change. And so for two reasons she needed to determine who her successor was going to be. Firstly, because it was practical and it was the right thing to do and it would also nip in the bud the endless gossip and rumour 
that was circulating in St. Petersburg. Which brings us on to the second reason, because most of that rumour and gossip was centred around Elizabeth Petrovna, Peter the Great's 24-year-old daughter, who was younger, which was a fact, more popular, probably, and better looking, possibly, depends on your view, than the Empress. Whatever the reason, Anna and Biron were determined that the next ruler of Russia wasn't going to be Elizabeth. The trouble was, if it wasn't going to be Elizabeth, who was it going to be? Well, there were only two other Romanovs to choose from. Karl Peter Ulrich, Elizabeth's five-year-old nephew, but he was discounted due to his age, his foreign father, and plus, of course, he was a Narishkin and not a Miroslavsky. And so that left Anna's niece, her sister Yekaterina's daughter, the 16-year-old Anna Leopoldovna, who was from the Miloslavsky side of the family, had been brought up in Russia, and her estranged foreign father was safely tucked away in Germany. Anna Leopoldovna's original name had been Elizabeth Katharina Christine von Mecklenburg-Schwerin, but in 1733 she converted to the Russian Orthodox Church and took on her Russified name. The Anna bit was chosen as a compliment or a nod to her arm. The next step in the Empress's plan was to arrange a suitable match for her niece, and in 1734 a certain Anton Ulrich of Brunswick was shipped over to St Petersburg and the young couple were given strict instructions to get to know one another. However, unfortunately for Anna Leopoldovna, and therefore everyone else on the Miloslavsky side of the fence, it was far from love at first sight. Young Anna made her feelings clear on the matter, but the Empress and Biron were having none of it. Get on with it, or put up and shut up was their stance. The Miloslavsky Romanovs needed a male heir, and she was their only hope. We'll come back to this in a later episode because eventually, and it would take five years, a male heir would be produced. But for the meantime, we need to check in with Elizabeth Petrovna and see how she was dealing with the fact that once again she was out of the succession stakes. Well, on the surface, all was looking fine and dandy. Remember that when Peter II had died, her reaction to being overlooked had been to say that she would have been too young and inexperienced and four years later, she seemed to be looking at things in the same way. But like any of us who've gone for an interview, ended up not getting the job, and have then said to friends and family something along the lines of, I'm not sure I really wanted the job, or I don't think I would have liked the organisation or the commute, Elizabeth must have been thinking, this doesn't look good. She knew that Ushakov and company were keeping an eye on her, and that she needed to be very careful around certain people. And so her strategy was to avoid anything that could compromise the situation, or that could be viewed as a threat to Anna or anyone in the cabinet. And so she lived a life of pleasure, taking numerous lovers, one of them, Alexei Razumovsky, was to be around for most of her life, attending balls, exchanging gossip and saying nice things about the Empress whilst all the time keeping a great big smile on her face. The only thing that unsettled Ushakov was that he'd noticed that Elizabeth was on good terms with several of the guard's commanders, but when he tried to raise this as a concern with Anna, she didn't seem to be worried. 
which was strange because it had been the guards' regiments who'd been behind Anna becoming autocrat and empress. Maybe Anna was right to be unconcerned, and anyway, she was wrapped up in her own little world, and was quoted as saying on several occasions to her ministers, Don't worry me with little things, sort it out yourselves. Advice that Ushakov took to heart when he had two guardsmen arrested and beheaded for treasonous anti-Anna and pro-Elizabeth mutterings. Something that Elizabeth would have to take note of. However, on the horizon were some big things that needed the Empress's attention. On the home front, Anna had big designs for St. Petersburg, and she'd started to catch the bug that several other Romanovs had been affected by. Reform. Plus, down to the south it had become clear that those Persian provinces that Peter the Great had snaffled up back in the day were just too difficult and too costly to maintain. And in what was a more worrying sign, the Crimean raids had started up again and were becoming more frequent. But all of that, I'm afraid, will have to wait. So until the next time, dear listeners, look after yourselves, and most importantly, stay safe. <laughs>